Remember, today's podcast is brought to you by LSKD, a Brisbane-based clothing company that we believe aligns incredibly well with our brand. Yeah, their active wear is taken over as one of the highest quality outfits on the market. And as well as that, their casual wear is next to none. I personally lived in it while I was in the UK. It's smart, it's casual, and it's stylish. So what more could you want? So from active wear to casual wear, make sure you check them out. You will also re- receive 10% off at checkout by using the code REBUILD. And by using them, you are helping us grow this podcast. And everyone is a winner, including you, because you will look fantastic. Let's get into the show. I'm James Beatty. And I'm Sean Carroll. And welcome to the Rebuild Health and Fitness Podcast. Where do you want to start it? Um, we'll just say, Welcome. Good. All right, and welcome back to the Rebuild Health and Fitness Podcast. Today we have on Aiden, the dietitian. I was thinking about this, right? Because I've known who you are for a while, yeah. like I've followed you for a while, and you know you're doing one thing right when you are just known as Aiden, the dietitian now. Yeah. Like you don't even need a surname <laughs> anymore. Like that's not necessarily a thing. And then one step closer again, you'll be coming like an Adele or a sting of like the nutrition of the nutrition world. There would be a worse for that. You one. reckon? <laughs> I don't know. I think I think it's getting there. So obviously, just reading about you and seeing everything that you do online, which will go into the online space. What? Let's give a bit of an elevator pitch mm-hmm. to to who you are. So I view myself as I normally say two things, but I'd call it three things now. I see myself as a dietitian who sees clients one on one. I see myself as a content creator. So I used to say fifty percent dietitian, fifty percent content creator. But now building a business, etc., like mm. a third is like staff management, those kind of things. The fun stuff. Yeah, I enjoy yeah. that too. Do um, you? Yeah, I do. Um, <laughs> so it's like it's good to split between three things that I do enjoy doing. Yeah. Um, in terms of like the kind of stuff. I do. I, I kind of follow my interests in terms of what I'm interested about with nutrition is what I talk about on Instagram. Then that attracts the clients that I'm mm. interested in seeing. So like, although you can, there's pros and cons of like niching down. Like I could say only work with yep. powerlifters, for example, that's an area I do work with a lot. But I personally, I'm just interested in working in a lot of spaces. So it's pretty much a 50-50 split between like general population, like people looking to lose weight, people looking to improve their health, manage specific conditions, like irritable bowel syndrome, diabetes, mm. whatever. And then the other 50% is athletes, mostly split favoring strength athletes. I could work with a lot of strength athletes like powerlifters and strongmen and stuff like that. But then also probably 30% of those athletes just broad, like in terms of endurance athletes or team sports. Yes. And when did the social media thing kick in? When did you go, I'm going to give this a bit of a... Yeah. A bit of a go. Combo of two things. So 2016, I first started business first time around and I was like... How do I market myself? Social mm. media. I'll start doing that. Because this was when you just finished, I believe. Because I think I remember you back in the day walking in this gym. Yeah, that was that was like 2019. Was that like... So I had a, a job at Bayside Health. So I started... Fuck, I remember that too, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. didn't realise until I came in today. I was like, yeah. oh, that's the gym. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so like I I started a business originally. Then I went and worked for other people, including that, that business. So I was only there for relatively shortly. And then I'd started the business the second time around, basically. Yeah. Um, so started social media for that reason. And then I, you guys would obviously know Gary Vaynerchuk. Like I was just like yeah, seeing yeah, his yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And like he was just like, it's almost like he was in my ear kind of thing, just constantly being like social media is a huge opportunity. And it, it, I think it is easier than an honest day's work in that short term, you don't really get anything out of it. But if you put the exact same work into it, 
the same you have the same ability and everything like that that you would in a regular career or whatever long term you probably get a lot more out of it it's a yep. long term play but that's easier than almost any other way i could think of of building my career in a way and you would say it would the majority come through socials now that's where everyone knows i think you. so i think i think the example like how i i dropped by that time it's like you, you had no reason to refer anything to me or anything mm. like that mm. but if you see stuff on social media and everything like that it's almost like i do that meeting with you it means nothing right but if you see stuff on social media and you're like hey i think this guy could actually help gym members whatever yeah refer through to that so like on the one hand a lot of direct stuff I get through social media. But the second one is like indirect. All the coaches and stuff like that who refer to me see my social media stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've referred a fair few people to your company yeah, see. over the years that has sort of been a little bit out of my yeah. scope and straight away you're the only, you know, you're in my head straight away. I'm like, yeah. hey, go and, go and see this guy's company. I think, I think personally, again, one of the um, – reasons i think you've seen so much growth and if i can talk about a couple of people that i follow it's because they can interpret call it research evidence well enough to format it really simply for general population people to understand yeah that's the goal because it's really complex and i think it can be shared and even when you read some stuff that is shared it is still (laughs) it is still complex so if you can formulate it easy and then you can explain things easy enough because I love one of the things about your your question boxes, and yeah. you do it very similar to like Sebastian Orb. This, this That's thing. where I stole it. Is from. it? He's actually who I stole it from. Right. Okay. Because yeah. I was like, right, it's very similar here. Because if someone asks you a question, which I would be at fault for this as well, I would go in instead of being like yes or no, I would go, oh, okay, there's something here. So I'll spend my time explaining it. Where it's like if someone says, hey, can you absorb more than thirty grams of protein? It's like, yep. And then it's like, next slide. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, it's just like, yes, or it's no. Yeah. But it makes it really simple. It's like, okay, well, that is the... Yeah, that's that, the answer. <laughs> that is the answer. And would you say, just from being in this space, if you can't explain something simply enough, then you don't quite understand it? I think so. I think there is, there's limits to that in certain topics and everything like that. Um, there are some complex topics that have to be mm. complex. Same in, in training, same in nutrition, everything like that. But... The goal is always to make it as simple as possible. And if you can't make a semi-complex topic simple, then mm. I would agree with that. Yeah, so We've seen that over time with a few of – or one of our coaches in particular. When he initially came in, he was trying to really sort of oversell everything he was doing. And remember, we had the conversation with him. He was like, hey, man, you probably need to just like dumb, dumb this down yeah. a little bit for the people that you're working with. And he's like, oh, no, like they'll they'll catch up to where I'm at. Uh, and yeah. it, was, it was like – Two or three weeks later, he's like, hey, you're right. Like, Yeah. Yeah, and even even that, it's something I struggle with myself because I'm like, I think I could go simpler and mm. it would work better. Like if I was like naming some people, I don't know if this would be relevant for people, but there's a few people like Jordan Syatt, James mm. Smith PT. Yeah. They've got heaps and heaps of followers. They get heaps of engagement and stuff like that. Lane Norton, he's somebody from an intuition perspective. Yeah. I look at his content and it's complex topics simplified down, but those two go simpler than him. And they mm. get more engagement than him. Yeah. Are they smarter than him? Are they better than him? Like, mm. it's hard to say. You'd say no. But <laughs> yeah. arguably, yeah. they might even help more people just yeah, yeah. because yeah. it's even simpler. Yeah. And this is the thing about when people were just honing on about, I suppose James Smith just honed on about this yeah. calorie deficit. Really simple. It's <laughs> yeah. just the one thing. And, and that was it. And he was just like, and it's the same as that evidence based. Yeah, he's very well, yeah. similar. Yeah. But again, it's just, 
what people need to hear at times, but people don't want it to be that simple. And it's not that simple. Yeah, it's like, not that simple. But yeah. again, if you hear the message over and over again, then it's going to start sticking. Yeah, exactly. And it also filters out because if that message isn't something that is put out super, super consistently, does the general public know that, although it's not that simple, that's yeah. the main priority, that's the main thing. And that's his market. Like yeah. you're a dietitian, so you have a bigger scope. He's yeah. like a nutritionist that's trying to help. The majority of people just change their body composition and live a bit healthier. So that's why he wants to be, or a lot of people want to be sort of polarizing because they don't want to work with everyone. So the yeah. majority of people that then follow you are kind of ideal clients. Yeah, 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 you want, clients, you, yeah, you want to do that. There's a guy in the UK, he has these called things called the purges. Yeah, okay. yeah, and every yeah. month he'll just put like abusive content online or like you know it's like content yeah. that most people find offensive and he says I'll lose like thousands and thousands of followers but he's like great yeah. I didn't want them here in the first place yeah 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 exactly um, reading about you do you reckon one of your strengths is your ability to adapt plan based on the client's desires yeah I, I think so this is that's once again one of the biggest struggles of actually doing it because like you get faced with somebody and you're like in an optimal world mm-hmm. where we just took the person out of it, this is what I would do nutrition-wise. But then when you factor the person in, work schedule, preferences, what do they actually want? Do they care about optimal? Do they care about just making good progress, everything mm-hmm. like that? Then it's like just working backwards from like what is optimal but what can we actually do and how can we make it an easier – how can we make it easier in ways that aren't compromising yep. everything? Yeah, because then there's creating, the like you said, a, a perfect plan or what yeah. you perceive as the perfect plan for your client. And then there's the plan that your plan, you know, the plan that your client can actually stick to yeah. are two very different things. I've created ones, plans that I've thought of been, yeah. this is great. This is solid. But yeah, they can't necessarily yeah. adhere I, to it. I also think in, in nutrition, there's diminishing returns in terms of like, say you put 100% effort in. It's not that much better than 90% effort mm. and that's not that much better than 80% effort. But the amount of effort involved from going to that 90 to 100 is insane because you have to kind of turn down yep. everything kind mm. of thing. So when we work about it from like work through it from that lens, it's like we can make a pretty significant changes from optimal and still get almost exactly the same mm. results. I think this is why it's important to work with sometimes with a one-on-one, like we spoke about some challenges before. I'm not saying anything about challenges right now, but that is a lot of the time they create a plan and they give the person the plan and say, stick to this eight weeks. And there isn't much going back to it and say, Hey, I can't stick to this because there isn't necessarily the time to be making those changes within that eight week block. Yeah. For every single person in a large challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Just very difficult to do. What are the most common mistakes you see? You reckon when people are trying to sort of eat healthier or start a new, a new plan, would it be the fact that they are trying to be too perfect? Yeah. I think that's one. That's a huge one. I see that even more so in, I'll use an example, like quite large people with quite energy, quite big energy budgets, they often aim for a very large calorie deficit and do try to be perfect. But like say somebody maintains their weight on like 4,000 calories per day, they might drop down to 2,000 calories per day and mm. aim to have heaps of fruits, heaps of vegetables, no junk food, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like they could have done 3,000 to 3,500 calories, yep. had a lot of those good habits and added a bunch of food yep. as well. Like. That's probably the most common one I see amongst like there's hundreds, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. What are some other key ones you think? Um, one, reducing food volume completely. If somebody's going for a fat loss phase being like, I think in a theoretical world, we could say you normally eat X amount of food when you transition to a fat loss phase. So let's say it's like a kilo of food per day you could continue eating a kilo of food and just change the energy density of food. Mm-hmm. That's getting complex, but what I'm basically saying is that there are some lower calorie foods that we can eat in larger amounts. Using, stealing a line from Jordan Syatt, 
Um, a kilo of watermelon still only has 300 calories. Mm. That's heaps of watermelon. Yeah. It's still quite low calorie. That's one example of like hundreds, right? But it's like theoretically you could take away some higher calorie foods that are really energy dense. Think most junk food or whatever. And then choose slightly lower calorie options. Maybe it is more fruits. Maybe it is more vegetables. Yep. Maybe it's leaner cuts of meat instead of higher fat cuts. And you can eat the same total food volume while getting leaner and you just wouldn't be as hungry. I suppose you can go the other way though, where you can go too much food volume. Some people yep. go that way, right? And then it's just a bit chaotic as well. Yeah. And something I think we'd agree on as well is like, it's a complex topic, but like what level of hunger is okay? Mm. Because we're not trying to get to the point where <laughs> that we're never hungry. Ever. Yeah. We've got to embrace some level of hunger. Well, this was sold a lot. I remember online a few years ago when people were talking online and people were basically saying, you know, if you're dating, you shouldn't feel hungry because of the foods you're eating. It's like, if you sort of want to deplete yourself enough to lose weight, you do need to be hungry at times. You've got to get used to some hunger. And part of the problem is, is that no one understands hunger now because everything's so easy. So mm. as soon as we start to even remotely feel yeah, yeah, yeah. We're hungry. We we eat. Once you get a decent income, you never need to be hungry <laughs> again. Yeah, honestly. I remember, I remember having a conversation with a client, and he was like, "I was like, oh, you know, when when do you, do you feel hungry at all?" He's like, "I haven't felt hungry in about fifteen years." Yeah, I was like, "Fuck!" Like, it is common, and that, that's why I phrase it the specific way I yeah. said, being like, "What level of hunger is okay?" Because most people would agree some level of hunger is okay. And if you're in a situation where you're like, oh, "I haven't felt hungry in this long," it's like. What do we need to change to get to a point where we're at a level that's okay? Like everyone would agree, shouldn't starve yourself, but what's the um, level that is okay? Do you use a scale? I felt so funny when I've had a couple of people starting to plan. It's like a message I used to give because she was like, James, I'm starving. I'm like, you're not. You're, pe- you're peckish. Like yeah. it, it will it will pass. Do you work on a hunger scale if you're saying that? Like what level of hunger? Yeah, I do to a degree. So it obviously depends on what somebody's trying to achieve. Like if say we're aiming for an aggressive and it's like, mm. okay, just what it is. Like we've got to embrace quite severe. But like for the average person just looking to get a little bit leaner, I think a good level to chase is, you know that feeling when you're a kid when it's like 4 p.m. and you tell your parents that you're hungry. <laughs> like yeah. Yeah. either they say have a piece of fruit, but you're not you're not that hungry. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. um, you're just fucking bored. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, or like wait for dinner or whatever. Yeah. And I use that example being like, if we can agree that that level is obviously okay, but as I said, once you've got a decent income, you never actually even need to experience that. If we agree that that's okay, it's like you can do that maybe a little bit more. Yep. Beyond that, it, we get into quite a nuanced topic because it's like you can go beyond that. We we could agree that fasting is okay under certain circumstances and like then it's working backwards from there. Mm. So like there's no like right or wrong, but I'd say that level is definitely okay for most yeah. people. Because I think there's an interesting thing that I used to do, Martin McDonald sort of I read about that he used to sort of do it like with really sort of overweight clients back when he was young he used to make them do around a 36 hour fast to start like yeah, any plan and, and that was yeah. just more from a psychological thing to say like do you understand hunger now you understand that hunger will pass you don't just won't get progressively yeah. more hungry which was really interesting when I first sort of read about that I was like it actually makes a lot of sense yeah in in a company like I I've seen him talk about that but in a company I worked at they they talk about like the concept of like the five two diet and stuff like that, mm. and like no inherent benefit of doing that yeah. over other forms. But using it with people who said that same thing, I've felt mm. hungry in fifteen years. It's, it just almost like set a new baseline of being like, okay, that's what a lot of hunger feels like. That concept you talked about, like we assume hunger. Most people inherently assume that's like linear. That's like mm. you get a little bit hungry and just keeps keeps and going. But most people who've done some form of fasting notice that it's like waves. Mm. It gets bad. Then it gets a bit better. Then it gets bad. It gets a bit better. Um, not not a tool I use for no. 
very often, but it is pretty eye-opening as well. Mm. And aggressive diets, because I'm quite a pro-aggressive diet to some, but everyone wants an aggressive diet, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Everyone <laughs> wants it, but very little can manage it. Yeah, so I think a good <clears throat> kind of test is being like, have you been consistent with nutrition for a decent period of time already? That kind of rules out most people who, are, who want to do an aggressive diet because it's like, hey, if you haven't been consistent already, why try and do something that's very hard? If you have somebody who's been consistent, they've had successful diets previously and everything like that, and they're like, hey, I want to be aggressive on this one for X, Y, Z reasons, then I'm definitely more open to it. Like there's a lot of, like if we work backwards from the downsides, what are the downsides of aggressive dieting? One of the most in the athletic space, people talk about like risk of muscle loss. Mm. If we look at the data, it doesn't – not actually as big as people would think. Do you lose more muscle in an aggressive diet than a, a slow yep. diet? You lose a tiny bit more or you might have less potential to gain muscle. But it's not actually that big of a difference. Mm. And then you get so much more time to maintain or go into a calorie surplus after. It's more of the other stuff of being like, once again, hunger management, the ability to stick to it, how easy it is. Micronutrient intake will be lower for that time frame, but it's also a shorter time frame. Um, I don't go out of my way to recommend it to a lot of people, but mm. there are a few people here and there where it can make sense. Mm, definitely. So if we're talking like meal planning, learning to cook, meal prepping, how important is this? Because again, everyone believes that they're busy or busier yeah. than what they probably think they are. You know, we all know people like that. And even just get people to sort of, not even meal plan, but just write down what they think they're going to eat on any given day. Like how important do you think meal planning becomes like without you, obviously you give meal plans, yeah. but without you, because you don't, yeah. you know, how important is that for them to be able to structure themselves and how important do you ever emphasize like learning how to cook yourself? Yeah. So I've got a few things with the, with the meal planning. I think almost everybody needs some form of system of thinking ahead being like, what am I going to eat on any given mm -hmm. day? It doesn't really matter how you get there. As long as you get there. Um, a lot of people, Sundays, they just plan it all out. Right. Um, me personally, I've tried that. I've liked it. But like most of my life, I've lived just like the day before being like, oh, what's my schedule? Like like today, I knew I was coming down here. Mm. It's abnormal, but it's like I'm instantly being like, oh, when do I eat lunch? Like when, yep. when does that fit in? What am I going to have for lunch? How does it help me stick to my goals? I think everybody needs some system for doing that. I think a lot of people don't have a system and then they fall in a position where they like have to make quote unquote bad choices mm. because of that. Um, with the cooking Tough one. I, I think it's incredibly valuable. I, we very clearly see people have better diets when they cook more frequently. If we're just looking population yep. level, cooking is a very, very important skill from that perspective. I'm pretty open-minded though in terms of like, what if somebody's super busy? Like, mm -hmm. you know, Muscle Chef, other meal replacement options. It's like theoretically you could have a, a better diet than the average person just by doing that. And that takes no effort, no planning, no whatever. You just order your meals and you can do it. So it's like you can get away without doing that and things can still go great. But once again, looking at the population level, I think I think most people benefit from cooking more I frequently. I think learning to cook is, again, I'm not, I say this like I cook all the time. I don't even like cooking. Yeah. But I've had so many muscle chef meals that I now open it and just start like heaving. That happens a lot. <laughs> <laughs> heaving a little bit. I literally just cannot taste anymore. So I just try and cycle through some. But what I find with people when you they actually spend some time cooking their food, there may be a little bit more connection to the food. Then they actually sit down and just eat the food. There's a yeah. little bit more like, I don't know if you'd call it mutual respect or a little bit more mindfulness around like, hey, I've just created this. 
this is nice. And then I always ask them, say, to write about it or in a checkup, and they always just feel better for doing that. Yeah. Always. And a little example, but like vegetable intake. Vegetable intake very clearly is high when people are cooking their own meals. Yeah. Yeah. And like the connection thing is huge too. Like weird example to use kids, but I think it still applies to adults. Like we very clearly see that like kids who are fussy eaters, if they're involved in the cooking process, they're Mm -hmm. so much more open to trying new foods because they had a hand in making it. Same kind of thing in adults, I believe, particularly with vegetables and stuff like that, being like, we're going to be more likely to be eating more vegetables if we ate it. And a lot of time people like, they don't like vegetables or they don't like some foods and a lot, you just don't know how to cook it. There's no one that can tell me that roasted vegetables aren't (laughs) an absolute you know they're a huge winner but you are right when it comes to like muscle chef meals you have like one stalk of bro- one stalk of broccoli yeah. in it and that's it and that's enough for me to be honest <laughs> tips for managing portion size effectively if not counting calories do you use the so no i'd like it like in terms of like the palm size yeah like, like yeah. the precision nutrition stuff that they used to be quite big on that i've never been yeah i've never been, i've never been big on that particularly just because there's um just different needs and stuff yep. like that. I work in, as I said, like the strength sports space, just being like, well, I, I guess I could change it to being like, let's do two palm size portions or something mm. like that. But like, I, I just personally wouldn't want to go down that route. Um, I have a few thoughts. Like one, I think it makes sense to have some form of awareness and everything like that of being like, I don't think every single person needs to track at some stage in their life, but I do think there's heaps of benefits of doing that. Yeah, I agree. Um, the other thing is understanding concepts of nutrition can make this simpler. Like if we simplify down to say weight management, but then in relation to, to performance, because like if you're on a surplus, that might help performance more than being a deficit or whatever. But like we simplify down to that. If you do anything relatively consistently and your weight is going in a certain direction, say you're going up and you didn't want to be going up, you would then know the like, okay, I've got to reduce portion sizes or reduce the frequency of eating mm-hmm. um, or reduce the calorie density. You've got those three options. If you keep doing something relatively consistently and then you make those changes, whether it's reducing portion sizes or whatever, you would get to where you want to be without tracking. Mm. And yeah, and a metric for that would be you just you monitor weight. Yeah, monitoring weight would be simple. And like in terms of like visually, like you can visually look at the portion mm. sizes and everything like that as well. And you could use a food scale occasionally as well like it's not like one or the other where you've got to weigh everything all yep. the time versus another thing like using like meat portions and stuff like that like when you get a 500 gram thing of lean mints you can look and be like oh, i had roughly a quarter of a packet that's mm-hmm. 125 grams or i had half yep. the packet that's 250 yeah and so when you are creating a plan say a deficit or a surplus do you give people variances or exacts so like 10 to 20 percent deficit or they're probably between like 1.6 and 2 grams per kilo or are you more yeah, to the point, like absolutes. So I do a bit of both. So with okay. the plants, I will lay it out. Like I will say something like 200 grams of lean meat, mm-hmm. this amount of these carb serves and for this minimum vegetable target and then a certain amount of fats and stuff like that. That's pretty specific. But then I will say aim to stick to the plan 89% of the time, which gives a bit of flexibility to go off the plan. I will often make the calories in the plan like 10 to 20% lower than what I actually want somebody doing because the flexibility will kind of take care of that in a lot of cases. With, with the other part about like say the protein house like 1.6 to 2.0 or whatever, instead of just saying 1.6, like why would I do a range? The reason I do a range is where do I come to the conclusion that 1.6 mm. is a good target or whatever? Well, the research shows mostly based on men who are like 10 to 15% body fat, that 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight is enough to optimize muscle growth, right? 
then it becomes a range being like, well, what if somebody's not fitting that criteria? What if they have less muscle mass? What if they have more? Like we'd obviously adjust it based on that. But I'd come to a different number. It wouldn't be 1.6. It could be 1.8 or 1.4. Why do I have a range? The reason I've got a range is because if you went above that, say you had two instead of 1.6 and your calories were still appropriate, you get the exact same results. Yep. There'd, be, there'd be no difference. It only would fall apart if you went really high above. Like say you had... 3.4 or something like that instead of 1.6 because then you'd have far less room in your calorie budget yeah. for carbs and fats and the other stuff associated with that. I suppose, it's, yeah, it depends if you're dealing, if you're dealing with an endurance athlete at some point where they need to make sure their carbohydrates are quite high yeah. and going too high on protein is going to be a little bit of an issue. But for the majority, yeah, it's probably not going to be. It's probably not an issue, yeah. Example, so you deal with some powerlifters. This is just, I literally just thought of this. Yeah. How much glycogen would they lose in a power session, in a session? Yeah, it's interesting. So we... There's one study that started all the time on, it was like six sets of leg extensions to failure and people lost 32 to 42% of the glycogen in their quads, yeah, right? Sure. So it's like, there's a few things to unpack there. One is that that's only six sets. Like yep. yeah. How, yeah, long is, yeah. how long is a proper leg session? Like you're doing more than that. Two, it was to failure. Not everyone's training to failure on every single, every single set. Um, three, it is probably a little bit more warped than you would think in that, we have different types of glycogen or not different types of glycogen, different muscle fibers are storing glycogen. That's the average that like say 32 to 42%. But some of the muscle fibers might've been reduced by like 57% kind of thing. Mm. Um, so when you think about it through that lens, like how much glycogen does a powerlifter need? We know we don't need to be carb loading. We know that people probably aren't going to be running out of glycogen if they're coming from good baseline levels. But then the next question is, how much does this then matter? If somebody did go into a session where they didn't have the optimal amount of glycogen, they weren't like super, super low, but they, they were a little bit under, it definitely doesn't affect the start of the session. Maybe they get mm. out a few less reps, maybe, on the last few sets yep. that they do. Does that carry over to performance? This is getting a bit complex, but if somebody is within the same proximity of failure on their last couple of sets do they get the same muscle growth if mm, glycogen yeah, is a yeah, yeah, factor? And I don't really have an answer to that question. Yeah. I think it makes sense to be well-fueled most of the time when you're training and everything like that. But the fact that I'm getting semantics being like, I can't even tell if that would be better or worse yeah. or whatever, means it can't matter too much. We'll go into some sort of performance nutrition later on in the podcast. But I guess, you know, if so, even I know it's not an intense thing for a powerlifter in terms of like heart rate being up for constant, like it would be like an MMA fire or, yeah. something, or something like that. But their sessions still are. They're long. Yeah. Long sessions, right? So you're depleting glycogen naturally anyway. Would you get them then to just have like an intra? Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's where it's pretty mixed to me. So I get some people to and some people not to. If I'm being honest, the way I actually structure it for most people is if they have sessions that they feel like they're fading, usually squat or deadlift sessions, like if they're doing a two-hour session and they feel like they're fading, I'm like, let's yeah. chuck some intricate workout cards in there. Yeah. I would definitely flail. I actually thought about I was squatting the other day. I said it would be interesting to go and do a session with Lily or someone. Yeah, we spoke cool. about it before, but I was like, oh, I think I'd die. <laughs> you know, like four Such sets, four sets of squats for me is like that's more than enough. That's why I power like, rest fine. so much between sets. <laughs> yeah. Wild. Well, again, this is interesting. I've spoken about this with so many clients, especially you know we're we're a level of intensity. Yeah. Food I did not strength blocks when people come from like these hit things and they think yeah. they need to be dying and. Yeah. you know, sweating and stuff. And I bring Lily up a lot in terms of, I think we asked Lily, how much do you rest? She's like, oh, between four and eight minutes per set. Yeah. I'm like, well, she's doing pretty well. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. you know <laughs> so but you think like a minute rest is too long and you need to be consistently working crazy mm. have you ever just just random one that popped in my head ever had an initial consultation with someone and they've sort of told you some of their eating habits or their lifestyle habits and you've gone fuck you need to stop that like now Definitely. i've got a lot of empathy yeah <laughs> like i've got a lot of patience i think one like being a dietitian has drilled a lot of patience into me mm. being like some people have incredible diets some people have really shocking diets and i see both ends of the spectrum and i'm gonna use an extreme example but like when i was on placement starting to be a dietitian one of my early experiences was somebody was drinking she claimed 16 liters of coke a day what like 16 liters 16 liters and i had the same reaction <laughs> no as way you. like i was like i i i took a step back and I was like, do you mean like eight two-liter <laughs> bottles? Yeah. And she's like, yeah. What? And like, I think everyone exaggerates when people are telling extreme yeah, things. I'm yeah, like, yeah. I don't know if she did that. When you exaggerate for less though? But yeah, a lot of the times, yes. Um, one of the things that makes me more open to believing her, she had one tooth left. <laughs> oh, wow. That'll do it. <laughs> yeah, 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 that'll do it. And like, so it's like, I don't know, like sometimes I'll get somebody who's doing something that's like oh, pretty shocking, but I've got like that level of comparison of being yeah. like, yeah. And with the like whole like, do I just jump in and say like oh, you got to stop doing that? Yeah, uh, it, it's tough because I, I'm trying to balance two things. One thing is this concept called motivational interviewing, where it's like people yeah. are so much more open to change when it feels like they've come to the, the idea themselves and everything like that. If I say stop doing this, yeah, does it make somebody want to stop doing that, or does it make them kind of build up some defenses in their own head, being like, no, actually, the reason I do this is for X, Y, Z reason. I like doing this because of this reason. It kind of makes them cling on to it a little bit more. Um, sometimes saying <laughs> you need to stop that, that's the thing that gets through to somebody and it does make them stop. Sometimes it makes them cling on to it more. And that's the challenge. It's like, sometimes it's the best thing. Sometimes it's the worst thing. So I'm trying to balance both those yeah. things. Yeah. Was that 16 liters like Diet Coke or just? Just regular, yeah. Big? Was like weighty? So she, she wouldn't, she'd be about 100 kilos. Yeah. Yeah. That's an incredible amount. Yeah. She'd have been good for a research paper herself. Yeah. Eye-opening. I only met her the one time. It was just on placement. But yeah, eye-opening. What was the goal for her? She just wanted to lose some weight and improve her health. Yeah. 14 liters? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> that's, that's the thing as well. Yeah. It's like, like there's a few people I will get like yeah. that. And I'm like, where do we start? Yeah. Like the other thing, like you're talking about with cooking and stuff like that. Like I, sometimes I'll get a client who comes in who has never really cooked. Like they grew up in a household where their parents didn't cook for them. Mm. They got takeaway every night. And I'm like, damn, like it's, I want to help everyone the best I can. And like, I will go home and be like, just thinking to myself, being like, where do I start with this person? Mm. Like, we know we don't need to go from here to optimal, yep. but how far do I go where we make incredible changes, see heaps of progress and everything like that, but I don't scare them mm. off. And, and like, you can probably see big progress for very small change with that individual person. Yeah. Even if she went 14 liters of Coke and two liters of diet Coke, yeah, she, would, she would make change. Yeah. And that, that's the thing. It's just like, how, how, do you, how do you keep somebody on board long enough yeah. to get the changes to snowball over time. Yeah, and if you take that away, it's not going to be long living. Yeah. Just clearly some level of, I don't like the word, using the word addiction when it comes to it, but so there's something there, right? There's something. So obviously big on social media. I take things away from your social media. It's a, it's a really good page. Um, I just want to bring up some of your posts that yeah. I've done that are sort of, because obviously you're quite on t- track with the topics at the moment um, so let's start with a recent recent sort of topic on everyone's lip and the question i get asked most weeks how good is collagen supplementation yeah and, this, should, and should we be having it 
This is tough. So, like, in, in our space and the area I care about the most, I care about it for joints, so tendons mm-hmm. and ligaments specifically. Um, how good is it? it? It's very hard to say. So, right now, we don't have a bunch of research. Some of the stuff that gets me the most excited is some of the case studies that has been published in the research with MRI data. Mm-hmm. So, like, one of the most the most cited study, there's a guy who had patellar tendinopathy. Most people with patellar tendinopathy the MRI doesn't actually show that much healing when they're back to being pain-free and back to performing well, right? It's almost like a lot of people talk about with back pain and stuff like that, how like a lot of people could have like a herniated disc, but they're functioning fine. It's like, do we worry about the MRI, right? Um, so like with, with patellar a lot of people, they do their rehab. Not everyone gets better, but like a lot of people will get better and they'll still have the pathology on an MRI. In, in these case studies, their tendon's healing. Like we're Mm. actually seeing the tendon healing. They're doing a bit of a different protocol. Like they're doing some heavy isometrics, which isn't always used in rehab and stuff like that. And they're having the collagen before doing the heavy isometrics. And it's hard to say is like, is it the rehab protocol or is it the collagen? That's the thing that gets me the most excited because we don't really see that stuff. Um, The proposed mechanism is not actually necessarily about the collagen. It's just the amino acid profile of Mm. collagen. Collagen's got a very different amino acid profile to most good protein sources and theoretically it's like you get blood flow <clears throat> to the area you're trying to improve or heal or whatever and it carries those amino acids they stimulate collagen synthesis in that area and it improves from there what we don't have though is research where it's like what we'd love is like get 50 people put 25 in one group give them collagen get 25 put them in a group and give them placebo give them the same rehab protocol let's let's see what yep. happens that doesn't exist. So at the moment, I'm excited. At the moment, I do think it works, but I will also change my mind very quickly yeah. <laughs> if, yeah. if we get the research and it shows that it doesn't really do anything. In terms of, say, performance, because mm-hmm. I've had a few people come in and start taking collagen over whey. Yeah, okay. That's when there's a little bit of a problem. So that's where there's a bit of a problem. So if we're looking at it from a muscle growth perspective, this this is going to sound like a hot take, but it's not. Like I'd view collagen as the worst protein source yeah. for for muscle growth, and the reason for that is the same reason it's good for joints and stuff like that. The amino acid profile, part of it, how how it's so high in some of these amino acids that theoretically are good for joints, is because it's low in other amino acids. Leucine in particular is one of the amino acids that's most linked to muscle growth. Collagen is notoriously low in that, but Researchers have gone through and have been like, let's add leucine to collagen and compare it to whey and see what happens. And whey dramatically outperformed collagen for muscle mm. growth, even when we accounted for that one thing, because there's, there's other amino acids that matter too. Um, and to add context to that, because I don't think everyone will fully appreciate this, when we compare whey to soy or whey to pea or whey to other protein sources, whey often outperforms a little bit, but like it's actually not as big of a gap as you'd think. Just versus collagen is actually it's a big gap. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah. you can only absorb so much collagen. Yeah, to a degree. Like I, it, I just say it would just stimulate muscle protein synthesis yeah. less. Yeah, yeah. The well, other the other aspect on performance that's interesting though is if it does help with tendons and ligaments in terms of recovering from injuries, does it make them stronger for performance? Like if somebody is a sprinter, they're using their tendons and ligaments. If somebody does a vertical jump, they're doing yeah. that. Even power lifters, like people. If somebody's benching 200 kilos, they've got strong tendons in their yeah, elbows. Yeah. If, if it works for that, maybe it works for that as well. It, it is tough because then you've got time. Do you mean with the healing process of just yeah. there just being time? So I suppose yeah. it would be quite a hard thing to, to measure. PCOS. Mm-hmm. 
very common, but probably underspoken about when I deal with women with PCOS, a lot of the time they think they're fairly unique and they're not, especially in sort of the, the people that are looking to sort of lose weight. What are some simple strategies we should look at straight away? Yeah, cool. So it's around one in 10 women with PCOS. So it is, it is very mm. common. Simple strategies we can look at straight away. I'll come back to the, the unique aspect. Yep. Simple strategies straight away. Um, First one, oversimplified, but like fat loss often does help. Obviously, lean PCOS does exist where people are lean and have PCOS. If you're in that shoes listening to this, obviously ignore the fat loss component. But fat loss can help improve insulin sensitivity, which is linked with a lot of the a lot of the symptoms in PCOS. We see pretty much all symptoms of PCOS improving with fat loss. So it's like if we can make that happen, that'll help. So once again, that does come back to a calorie deficit. The second one, this is kind of my um my tip that is less well known but is relatively effective. There's a supplement called mm. Inositol, which basically Martin McDonald was the yeah, person big who really one. Yeah, his original stuff, and that was good. Yeah. yeah, and basically, once again, almost every symptom of PCOS improves. If we go deep down the rabbit hole and we get blood tests and everything like that, which I, I don't actually recommend getting a blood test for this, but we see Inositol deficiencies quite commonly in PCOS, and that's part of how it actually works. It improves insulin sensitivity. People have less hair loss or hair growth depending on their symptoms, their menstrual cycle regularity improves and they're more likely to have better fertility mm. when they supplement that. And I love that as an easy win because it's like all you've got to do is take Huge. the supplement. Yeah. And yep. I've seen some women fall pregnant after maybe sort of six, nine months taking yeah. a supplement. Yeah. So that's the easy win. The other one is like carbohydrates. This is where it gets interesting as well in terms of a lot of people in the PCOS space are recommending low-carb diets. And once again, something that Martin McDonald got me onto just like through one of his posts is like he basically summarized the research being like I don't actually have low carb research on PCOS mm. like there's like one like rogue keto study that exists or something like that but it's like everybody's looking at studies that take people from like 60 to 65% of calories come from carbs which is super high down to like 45 to 50% which most people in the fitness community would call relatively high yeah. to start off with and we're seeing dramatic improvements there but that therefore means most people who are recommending low carb diets are doing it based on theoretical reasons which i could understand um but they're not actually being like oh no the research has definitely shown it's like a bit of a speculative leap mm -hmm. and when i'm working with people in that space do i reduce their carbohydrate intake or aim for lower gi carbs yeah i do but i don't take it like super far i would just like I'd, I'd view them similar to how i'd view an average person and then just go a little bit lower carb mm. and then resistance training yeah, I encourage that. Like you, you might see, <laughs> if I see someone on Instagram who has PCOS in their name, every now and then there's like yeah. <laughs> there's like a rogue like, oh, you should never do resistance training because that will raise cortisol and that's going to cause other hormonal issues and stuff like that. Um, people who have PCOS should do gentle exercise and stuff like that. But it's like like we don't chuck out the handbook with this. Like it's mm. we very clearly see research on resistance training. People with PCOS, their symptoms yeah. improve. If people get leaner, which we know resistance training will help with, PCOS on average improves. So I'm big on resistance training as well. For sure. Carb cycling. Yeah. Because again, interesting, even though you just spoke about PCOS and we'll talk about carb cycling now, for the high majority of general population people, we probably do have too many carbohydrates in the diet. Yeah, I'd say on average, yeah. Yeah. So carb cycling, so what is it? And then when should we be looking to do it? So put simply, carb cycling is just having different amounts of carbohydrates on different days. Theoretically, if somebody wanted to average 200 grams of carbohydrate per day, they could either have 200 grams of carbs every day, or maybe they could do like 
150 most days of the week and then one day have a really high day of carbohydrates or have two days where they do high carbohydrates. Um, advantages, from a body composition perspective, we don't see any differences in muscle gain or fat loss, assuming the average comes out the same, although there can be a caveat that I'll talk about with that. Um, from a, call it a compliance perspective, for some people it's easier, for some people it's harder. Um, how many people want to eat more food on weekends? How many people want to eat more food on different days? Like if you would either prefer to have slightly more carbs on the weekend or whatever because it gives you more flexibility, this could be an option to achieve that without sacrificing any results. Mm. That may or may not be easier. Like I, I'm a believer in keeping your weekend intake relatively similar yeah, to your weekday intake, but it's like it is an option. The other thing is on different training days. Like – that example I talked about with intra-workout carbs earlier, I often will just add that in on top because I'm like, well, they are burning more calories on this training day anyway. Let's just add a little bit more carbs in on that day. Some people just feel better when they eat more carbs before they squat and stuff like that. Mm. Somebody has a high volume day, maybe it makes sense to eat more carbs there. Does that carry over to improved body composition? Like we don't have really have research saying that that does, mm. but just if you think about how you feel, like some people will just feel better if they have more carbs before a hard yeah. session. And I prefer, I, I tend to sort of come away from it as well, especially because a lot of people will say, should I drop carbohydrates on my non-training days? And I don't necessarily like that either. You know, that day's to sort of get you ready to go and train again. Yeah. And that's why if I am implementing it, it's usually not that big of a difference. Like say if I think the average powerlifting session burns 500 calories, for example, I don't give people 500 calories more on that day and then mm. 500 calories yeah, yeah. less on rest days. I might give them 200 calories more in the form of carbohydrate just for that kind of feeling. It's not like we're trying to exactly match the calories we burn or everything like that. And if most people do it in their own lives, like they're just trying to eat a little bit less on rest days, they're usually going to overshoot by like being like, oh, I'm not training at all. Maybe I don't need mm. any carbs. And it's like, well, we're still recovering and everything mm. like that too. Definitely. What would you say to people who believe their metabolism is broken? So, in research, we have never seen... <laughs> trying to be empathetic now, too. We, yeah, we, we have never seen people on low calories not losing weight, Yeah, ever. When all food is provided, we have never seen that. Um, we see this in the real world, but there's so many variables that go on in the real world. We never know what anybody is doing 100% in the real world. Um, there are a few other things I'd unpack with that. One, technically you can get an indirect calorimetry test, which measures your basal metabolic rate. I personally don't send many people for that because it's like I'm very confident most people come out relatively close to what you would expect. Yeah. Um, we see like, the body doesn't burn calories for no reason. The body is always burning calories for a purpose. We see other medical conditions like Hashimoto's is a great example, hypothyroidism, where the body is incredibly downregulated and people are suffering pretty severe symptoms. Like their, their digestion is really poor, they're getting brain fog, their core body temperatures decrease and stuff like that. And their body is burning less calories because it's doing less functions. On like the most extreme we've seen in studies on hypothyroidism is a reduction in about like 15% of their basal mm. metabolic rate. Because if you go any further than that, like, like the body has functions that it's got to keep going like the yeah. heart has to keep yeah. going like another thing that is interesting to think about where there's not so much into individuality is muscle or lean tissue burns about 12 calories per kilo fat burns about four calories per kilo that's not hugely variable between people that means if somebody is say 100 kilos let's use a really easy number say they're 50 percent body fat you could there go 100 times by eight 
that's 800 calories just burned through the muscle and fat yep. existing. You, your body can only downregulate so far. Yep. Yeah, because I think it's good to just tell people that they're not broken. I think people, they they truly believe that they are yeah. broken. And when you tell them they're not necessarily broken and that usually the bigger you are, the faster the your more, metabolism, yeah. you know, it's it's not slower at this point. Yeah, I've got one more that I'll add on to that as well. There's, um, in terms of, there's there's a prevailing belief that if we do long-term dieting, yo-yo dieting or whatever, that our metabolism could be broken due to that. Once again, we have heaps of research on mm. this. The body cares far more about what we've done recently than what we've done like two years ago or three years ago or however long ago. A dieting attempt many years ago very likely does not really affect mm. our metabolism now. There's one study that makes that's really popular that has kind of spread this belief and makes it a bit of a contentious topic in the fitness community. And it's the Biggest Loser study because they they tracked the participants on the Biggest Loser and they measured their metabolism before and then six mm. years later. On average, they were roughly the weight that they were at the start of the show, but their metabolism was about 600 calories slower. Yeah, right. Than a formula would predict, whereas it was exactly how you predict yep. at the start. There's a few things here, though. One, when I'm trying to approach this with empathy, their total daily energy expenditure was still over 3,000. Yep. Their basal metabolic rate was suppressed by about 600, but due to size, activity, like they were still doing some exercise and mm. everything like that, like they were burning a lot of calories still. Um, but two, it's the only study that we have ever seen this. Yeah. If yep. we have. <laughs> I'm not going to put a number on it, but heaps of studies over here showing that their metabolism is not suppressed years after dieting. And one study that shows it is with a sample size of around 10, what do we pay more attention to? Mm. I'd pay more attention to that and just kind of be like, that's really interesting that this has happened. I'll keep an open mind. Yep. But I won't relate this to the person in front of me who hasn't gone through that exact same experience. Yeah, I get that. Because again, starvation mode was a thing. I don't want to come into it now. But That's I where it started. It was this study, yeah. yeah. But I always think starvation mode is interesting because it's only a Western world problem. Yeah, and that's why I also go back to that concept of like the the lock people in a room, all food is provided. How can we never see this? How can we never see in starvation camps? Mm. We never see that. Like there's so many real world examples where, yeah, we, we don't see this. Food tolerance tests. Accurate, stay clear, and where should we get them? If we're going to get them, because I know they've got little numbers, where should we get them? Yes. Yeah, so where shouldn't oh, do we want to throw people under the bus? Where shouldn't we get them? So, in terms of food intolerance tests, like there's there's nothing good. I wish there was. Right? I really, really, yeah, really sure. wish there was. Um, I'll start with the common ones. Explain why they're not so good. So, like the common ones, are like hair testing, blood tests. Those are the main ones. Um, some breath tests as well. Breath tests. I'll talk about that a bit more. But like. <laughs> Um, IgG testing is probably the most common one. That's a blood test. Um, a lot of, I, I won't say who tests that, but like just because I'll go on to the next thing. <laughs> we can. <laughs> it's fine. We're happy to. Okay. You've said it, not me. Um, but so IgG testing has over a 50% false positive, right? It will often come back with a really long list of foods that you need to avoid. But one of the things it is really testing for is your exposure to foods. Mm. If you eat these foods more frequently, it is going to show up with certain antibodies, which is actually what it's testing for. It's testing exposure. So therefore means you get a long list of foods that come back and most of the foods on there will be things that you have been recently exposed to. And because you know you're getting symptoms, you know you're eating something that's causing these symptoms. If you cut out everything on that list, there is a, there is a decent chance that you don't get symptoms after that and it will help. And that's why a lot of people will cling on to that one. But 
how many foods in there are false positives that you just chucked out in the process. Yeah. So a 50% false positive rate, I'm like, that, that's just too high. All the other ones like DNA testing, hair testing, similar kind of thing. I really wish there was something that we could do because the real way of testing it is through elimination and systematic reintroduction. Yeah. I was going to say, does this annoy you though when people do simplify this and go go and get a food tolerance test where you know how difficult it is to hit like a FODMAP? Yeah, like FODMAP's a great example. It, it, it's tough because it's like the reason why I wish there was something we could just test for a blood test is because I don't want to put anything anybody through the entire process of <laughs> doing this if we don't have to. But I'll use an example. So breath tests are semi-legit but are not really used by doctors that much anymore. So there's like a lactose intolerance breath test you can do and there's a fructose malabsorption test. The reason why they're not really used anymore is because theoretically you can get a fructose malabsorption test. You can take some fructose, your bacteria won't, it will malabsorb it and it will show up on a test that you're a malabsorber of fructose. What if you never got symptoms? Mm. Like once again, around 50% of people who do that test, it will show up that they're fructose malabsorbers or they've got a fructose intolerance, but they've never had symptoms from fructose. So it doesn't matter if you're malabsorbing something if you've never gotten yep. symptoms. So what we what would be a better way of doing it is like let's use the low FODMAP diet as example. There's multiple elimination diets, but that's the most popular one. You cut out everything that is a potential trigger, say FODMAPs in this example. And ideally, you don't get symptoms when you're, you've cut those things out. If you're still getting symptoms, you're like, okay, well, I haven't cut out the thing that's causing symptoms. That wasn't the solution. But if that works, you then systematically reintroduce you go through and add each group back in systematically and you don't just have a little bit. Like you, you start with a little bit, then you have a moderate amount and then you have a large amount. And if you have a large amount of that food and it didn't cause symptoms, it's no intolerance there. Mm. If you get symptoms from it, you now know for sure that that was the thing that caused it. It's a lot of work. Yeah. But you also know, and although intolerances do change over a lifetime and stuff like that, but you know with confidence, you're like, that was the thing that caused mm. it because I had no symptoms. I've added this back in. And like same thing with like, I know I, I don't promote it, but like say the carnivore diet, for example, if somebody did that and their symptoms went away, they could theoretically go through this process of reintroducing stuff. And they're like, oh, if I got no symptoms from that, that would be good. Although the one caveat to that is sometimes when we take stuff out and then re-add it, we're more likely to get symptoms because we haven't had exposure to that. Yeah. And this is another thing that you see, right? When people give up the foods that they eat and then they start reintroducing yeah. them, then they believe that they are the problem. Yeah. So you've got to go, if you are trying to trying to reintroduce a lot of stuff, you want to be going slow. Like the example I said with like kind of sending it and having a large amount with that FODMAPs example is just being like, we just want to know for sure that this causes something. But theoretically, with some of these things, you can reintroduce it, get moderate symptoms, and then go back to slowly introducing it and your body will build up a bit of an adaptation to being able to have it. It won't always though. So it's a bit of trial and error, like long-term as well. So stay away from them. That's why I got. Not in all cases, in a lot of cases, but like let's use some examples like garlic and onion, right? So like a lot of people would agree that they're good prebiotic foods, but there's a lot of people who have mild intolerances to them. If they have low levels of that and then slowly build up, they could get to a point where they could have a normal amount with no symptoms ever and it's not really an issue for them. Um, Sometimes an intolerance could be a quote-unquote healthy food that could be beneficial for somebody's health, but they're just intolerant to Mm. it. But if they get no symptoms from it and they've built up to that slowly, the bacteria in their intestines are now able to handle it better. They could get that. They wouldn't need to stay away from it. But then there's other situations where it's like, hey, they can't even build a, a tolerance to a small slash moderate amount. In that case, I'd be like, let's just stay away from it. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go into performance a little bit. Yep. Firstly, we want to start on 
because I'm going to say, and because we do, so I'm going to say you do being from more of a performance-based sort of dietitian route, is when you may have a lot of people want to get into this sort of strength building, this mm-hmm. performance building, but they're so stuck in this sort of weight loss mentality. What are some strategies you use to get them out of that weight loss mentality when they are looking to sort of perform or build? Because it's really not as easy as yeah people always think. Yeah. So there's a few things. One is like you can take a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Like you can't always just make somebody do that. As you can kind of tell, I'm a pretty positive person. I'm always trying to build people yep. up and everything like yep. that. And I'm pretty, I am patient in terms of I'm okay with starting slow. Like I, I will work within, I'll push people 20% out of their comfort zone. And I'll be like, if somebody's always been in that weight loss mindset and say I want to put someone in a calorie surplus, I might be like, hey, let's just go to maintenance calories yep. and let's start there. Sometimes I might even undershoot maintenance calories a little bit just to get them comfortable with the idea of raising their calories. And then they have a good experience there their performance improves a little bit, we add a little bit more. And then we just keep adding a little bit more. And I'm always reassuring them being like, hey, your goal is my goal. Like if you ever do change your mind, we can scale the calories yeah. back. But I, I do find in a lot of cases, once people do start performing a little bit better, they see the benefits of it, they can be more open to embracing it. I think that's so important. That's why we're so sort of um, stuck on like having objective measurements for performance. Yeah. You know, really. otherwise you just think that you're getting a little bit better. I've said it a couple of times on the podcast where I'll take someone through like a weight loss phase and then we'll go into a, like a big maintenance phase or even a slight surplus. And they will still sort of message me saying that their weight's the same. I'm like, yeah, like that's yeah, the goal. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like this, this sort of panic thing that my weight isn't changing. It's like, it's not supposed to be changing. Yeah. It's supposed to be the same. And that's why I'm emphasizing the patient's thing. Cause I experienced yeah. it. Like it, it happens and it's weird. Cause it's like, you've said that's the goal i've said that's the goal you're freaking out when yeah, you're achieving yeah. the goal yeah yeah <laughs> so that's it. it's just part of the process <laughs> yeah so nutrition around training yeah. how much emphasis do you put on this like what what do you look for your athletes to consume sort of before do you always want your athletes to eat prior to training um and then how important it is to eat sort of after obviously there is a bit of a window yeah you know you used to have the bro science which was like really quick the yeah. research i think up to 24 hours, but ideally around sort of that one to three. Well, I'm st- I still ideally want it within the hour. Yeah. Yeah. So I agree with all that. So like, let's, let's look at it from the optimal perspective, absolutely trying to optimize performance. So I would want people eating in a perfect world, say they're training in the afternoon just to get sleep out of it for a second, eating three hours before probably a meal that has a decent amount of carbohydrates in it and is relatively easy to digest. And then one hour before having a snack that once again has some carbohydrate, but is super easy to digest. Like it's not super high fiber or super high fat with the main goal of one feeling good. That is the number one priority. So they go into the session feeling as good as they can. And then two having decent glycogen stores and everything like that. The difference I'd make is if it was earlier in the day and they had to get like I'd always prioritize sleep above getting up like three hours early for a, to get food in yep. or whatever. Um, in terms of like, do I always want somebody to be well fueled? So for powerlifting and stuff, yes. For endurance sports, it's really interesting in that there's a concept called train low, sleep right. high, and I've got mixed thoughts on. It. I don't really have a strong opinion on it, but there is. We know very clearly that there's some benefits of training in a low carb state. Like if you look at the research on high-carb versus low-carb diets and endurance performance, we see high-carb diets outperforming slightly. Mm. We see high-carb diets outperforming slightly. But like it's not as much as you'd expect. Mm. And that's because there is some training adaptations that occur. People like it's mitochondrial efficiency and stuff like that. It's the ability to improve the ability to oxidize fat and stuff like that um, that occurs in, in training in a low-carb state. 
And some people are sort of idea being like, hey, why don't we just train in a low carb state all the time and then carb load and have heaps of carbs during the event? But that doesn't work very well because people aren't good at tolerating carbs if they haven't been exposed to it yep. for a while. The next step is like, why don't we do a bit of both? Like, why don't we train sometimes in a low carb state, sometimes in a high carb state? We keep the ability to tolerate and utilize carbs well, but we get exposure to the benefits of training in a low carb state. To the best of my knowledge right now, the research hasn't shown that outperforming, but it's it's an idea. And it's like, mm. I, I, I'm very open to it being like, not the end of the world to train in a low carb state occasionally because yeah. of potential benefits there. But some of that research is like train low and then they recover low. Like they yeah. recover low, I don't really understand too much. So it's like, say you say you're going to endurance athletes training twice a day. It could be like you do one session in the morning, you eat a bunch of carbs, you do your second session well fueled, and then you don't have any carbs until mm. the next session the next morning. So you're you are recovering yeah. low. But that the logic there is more so just to not have gl- good glycogen stores going into the next mm. session and not having exposure to carbs. Yeah. Yeah, I don't like it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, don't, I don't necessarily utilize yeah. it because it's like it, it adds a layer of complexity without. Like, yeah. if I saw that this is helping people two percent more, and I've got an elite athlete, I'll do it, right? Yeah. But if I if I can't see for sure it's helping, I'm like I don't want to add heaps of complexity for something. That I'm like I'm not even sure it's this working. Yeah. I mean, is that because they wouldn't be able to be more metabolically flexible if they're just hammering carbohydrate constantly? Yeah, theoretically, and that's where it comes down to like what event are they doing, right? So like. We see the best marathon runners in the world like finishing in around two hours, right? Still, I still can't get over that. Yeah, it's you know? absurd. It is absurd. <laughs> now, I've gone into running recently and now I'm seeing those times like, oh my yeah. God, like they do that for 42Ks. Anyway, but <laughs> but like we see their like glycogen stores running out around an hour and a half. So it's like if they're a little bit metabolically inflexible, does it actually matter that much under those circumstances? Mm-hmm. They've only got like half an hour left basically. Um, but if somebody's got like ultra endurance, does it matter a little bit more? And that's where it's just like, I don't know, just, we just need more research on yeah. that specific area. Because we spoke to Jordan Sullivan a couple of times on this and he's just so big on making all his athletes eat prior to training. There's like, yeah. even if you don't like it, he's like, yeah. train your body to do it. Because yeah. we, we will hear it a lot, mm. um, you know, in the morning, I just can't eat in the morning and we try and push people to have something, yeah. just something and they're going to feel better. And I'm going to say it's near... I don't want to put a percentage on it, but it's a very high percentage that go, wow, I do feel a hell of a lot better. Legit, yeah. yeah. And like some things I, I add to challenge the belief of I can't eat before I train is if we go back to that marathon example, yes, they're carb loading and everything like that, but they're on average at the top having 90 grams of carbs per hour while running. Mm. So over that two-hour period while they're performing intense exercise at an elite level, they're having 180 grams of carbs. Yeah. And once again, from a place of empathy, I'm thinking about it being like, you're, you're telling me that you can't have any carbs before you train they're doing this while they're doing it and like i like to scale it back just like because we can regress everything right and just be like could you have five grams of something that's really easy to digest if you can do that can you do 10 Mm. there's there's a there's a line somewhere that's like you can do something and then the concept of training your body to be able to take on more as well yeah because i think when you say carbohydrates people people automatically go like potato pasta yeah and it's like, oh, there's a lot of fun stuff we can there's have. There's heaps of options, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And post-training. Yeah. So post-training, I'm on the same same line of thinking as you in terms of like the anabolic window. Getting a little bit scientific, it is a three to five hour window around training. Describing that further, the only reason that five hour portion kind of exists is if you have heaps of protein a couple of hours before you train, 
it's not really urgent to get protein post-workout. Mm. And like thinking about it simply, it's partly because it's just digesting and absorbing. Still, your muscle protein synthesis will spike regardless because you've got protein in your system. Mm. So it's like, say we take that out and we don't really have protein before we train. Well, actually on that topic, like research has shown that if you have a protein shake before you train or after, you get the same results. So it's like mm. you can have protein before you train. Um, but say, say you haven't done that. You haven't had any protein for ages. Say you're training fasted, for example. After... Based on that logic, you've now only got around a one and a half hour window. Mm, yep. And you could argue that it's only as short as an hour. Um, that's why it's a three to five hour window. But I think having it be a habit that you just do is a good idea. Because if it's something that you do, you always make sure you get protein within at least a few hours of training. You tick that box every single mm. day without even thinking about it. I just like to understand it's a three to five hour window because it gives flexibility because it's like, say your circumstances make it difficult to get protein post-workout and you know you have an opportunity to get a fair amount in before the workout, you'd get the same results. Yep. And during the session, do you have like a certain amount of time, like your session must be this long before we add in sort of an inch of carbohydrate or would it be like more intensity driven? It's both. So for, for powerlifters, as I said, if somebody's doing a two-hour session but they feel great, I won't add it in. I'll just, I'll just leave it right. If they feel like they're fading, then I will add it in. Um, for endurance athletes, it comes back to the performance and being like, say somebody feels like they can do the session without it, but it's a relatively long session and they don't have any other times in the week where they're adding carbohydrates in. I'm like, well, we need to be using carbohydrates during the event. We need to be, call it practicing it during our training and stuff like that, but building up the tolerance and the ability of the body to utilize those carbs during training. So if somebody was doing even like a 10 to 15 K run, and they're like, oh, that's cruisy for me. But they didn't have any other times in the week where they're having carbs. I'd be like, we've, we've got to get some in just mm. to have exposure to it. I was curious about, you know, obviously you work with athletes who when prepping for competition, they have to go through weight cuts. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you deal with any any fighters, but I assume for your powerlifters as well, there's a period of anxiety and stress around, you know, before before the big day, yeah. How do you deal with trying to refeed someone who is essentially has no appetite? They're feeling anxious. They don't want to eat. Yeah. Like we had, I had a fight on the weekend, and the week leading up to it, it was very much just force feeding. The day of was yeah. like, this is I'm not hungry, but I know I got to eat. And we're mm. sitting there with one of the um, essentially he's, he's the Australian. Cruiserweight? No, nah, he's, like, he's much lighter. Well, he's tiny. He's <laughs> he's like, lightweight, lightweight. Yeah, he's 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 tiny. He's like, yeah, I don't don't eat at all. Fight day, really? Yeah, and we're like the that's fun? wild. Yeah. So what do I do? So obviously try and make it stress free as possible. But let's say I am faced with that situation. Somebody's got limited appetite. So for all my people who have got doing weight cut, I do have a rehydration protocol and. Mm to start off with, they get everyone to do regardless of how they're feeling pretty much. And the first thing I do is I get them to have around a liter of fluid per hour. Obviously I scale it based on size, but it will be like 500 mil of Gatorade or Powerade. Then there'll be a protein shake. Then there'll be some hydrolyte. Um, and that will add up to around a liter, right? And if they've got limited appetite or if they've done a big weight cut, I'll get them to do that again the following hour. Um, the reason why those numbers are chosen are just because we can only resynthesize glycogen at a certain rate. Yeah. We can only absorb water at a certain rate. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's not going far beyond that. Um, so it's like that starts the process. 
If somebody's done a big weight cut and that is the thing that's limiting their appetite, usually by the end of the second hour, they'll be feeling better and they'll be feeling up to eating. The stress portion is a bit different. Like this isn't something I've played around heaps under those circumstances, but if somebody's just like stressed or anxious in general, I there's two supplements I use a bit. One is called L-theanine, which is basically, mm-hmm. it's, it's a compound that's in tea, but like not at the therapeutic dosage, which just makes people feel a bit more relaxed. And another one is ashwagandha, which sounds mm, it's another yeah. rogue recommendation, yeah, but right. it's like it's an Indian herb used in Ayurvedic medicine. I'm not even sure how you say that, like because I just read that all the time. Yeah, but I, it's it's called it's a mushroom, isn't it? Like a it's a herb of it's a herb. Yeah, so like it's gaining popularity. It's it is just, gaining yeah. popularity. Hey, like I I I found out about it like two or three years ago. I was like, oh, do I post about this on Instagram? Like all the research looks like on stress in particular, every study that's been done on ashwagandha and stress has been positive. And it looks a bit too good to be true. Hey, <laughs> like, yeah. And then I was like, no one else in the evidence-based space is talking about this. I'll start playing around with the clients and stuff like that, but I won't be public mm. about this. And then every now and then I've seen a few people since then yeah. talking about it. I'm like, oh, I was onto something. I just, <laughs> just didn't yeah. talk about it. But those two things should help somebody feel less stressed, less anxious. And if that then carries over, because like I don't use it under those circumstances because I haven't experienced that, but comp day stress, heaps of powerlifters stress on comp day. And if that impacts their performance, I'm like, well, let's add this in because that might help them. Yeah. And lastly, when should someone see a dietitian over a nutritionist? Because I I still don't think, obviously there is big differences, but I still don't think a lot of the general population know yeah. The big differences. So as you can kind of tell, very positive person. I think there's good people and bad people in every profession. Definitely. There's bad dietitians, there's good dietitians, there's bad nutritionists, there's good nutritionists. And then there's people who specialize in different things. So where I draw the differentiation, assuming you're seeing somebody good from either, either profession, is just around the medical condition. So like mm-hmm. legally, like literally just legally in, in Australia, if somebody has a medical condition, theoretically a nutritionist can't write a specific plan yeah, yeah. for that person so once some if somebody's got pcos for example technically a sports nutritionist or a nutritionist in general can't write a meal plan for them whereas a dietitian can that's where i would definitely go towards a dietitian yeah definitely anything medical or anything sort of like eating disorder yeah you know i, I know some nutritionists think that they specialize in the eating disorders because maybe yeah. they've had it before but yeah, a lot of time you've got to be very careful. And that's yeah. where it's coming to me. That's where mm-hmm. I've sent the majority of people when they've I've seen tendencies that I haven't been. It's not disordered eating at this point. Like I've had some come across and was like, this needs, Yeah, this is way out of my, <laughs> my scope. And I think as a nutritionist that deals with general population a lot of the time, to be honest, even if you could create a good plan, it causes so much stress anyway and there's more qualified people that can yeah go and do that an example i use like in terms of like the the stress and stuff like that is like i work with a lot of coaches who could do the nutrition Mm. for their clients but it's like it's interesting to think like what if you they they follow your exercise they love it they do the program but then they fall off track with their nutrition kind of like Mm. eats into a relationship a little bit whereas like if you like differentiate that by sending to somebody else if that relationship breaks down, it doesn't affect the coaching. Yeah. And the yeah. FODMAP stuff, there's the time yeah. that it takes to create something like yeah, that. It's yeah, absolute, it's a lot of work, yeah. It's absolutely bonkers. Yeah. But how do you feel about when you see, and this, I'm not gonna, you're probably sending you into a negative thing now, not positive. Yeah, go for it. Like a lot of gyms and stuff, they will create a challenge and they will just give meal plans. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Honestly, I don't think about too much. Hey? Yeah. Like, um, 
Yeah, I just don't. Like, it, it's something I mean, It's usually that, the same meal plan for the 100 yeah, people. If, if I spend a lot of time thinking about that, I'd just be triggered yeah, all right. the time. So, it's like, it's just something I came to terms with many years ago. I'm like, yeah. okay, I'm just not going to, like... Can't do it. Yeah, it, it is this, I don't know, call it an abundance mindset or whatever. Like, going back to the Gary Vaynerchuk thing, like, mm. that that's one of the things, like, I learned a lot from seeing his content. Like, there's pros and cons of his content, content obviously. But, like, one of the things I learned from him is, is he talked about an example of being, like, what if somebody steals your work on Instagram? What should you do? And a lot of people are like, how do I, how do I take this person down? How do I, yeah. and like, yeah. whereas I'm just like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect yeah. me. Yeah. Like they, yeah. if they benefit from this, I don't lose. Mm. If they don't benefit from it, I still don't lose. Like, mm. and the same kind of thing with the the gym stuff. It's like, instead of me focusing on that kind of stuff, cause it, it affects me in that like, it's harmful for people and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I'm always just going to be trying to help people as much as yep. I can. That That's a finite resource that I've got. Instead of focusing on that, I try and focus on just like, doing yeah. my bit to help and with the content thing i think it's important to give credit i remember you used to do this a lot in yeah. the day you'd use people's posts but you'd always credit yeah, the yeah person because yeah. that was the content it would get people talking so i don't know why people yeah exactly don't because yeah I, and like even i i haven't done that in a long time i used no. to do that a lot more but um there was one person i won't name him big big instagram audience has over a million followers in the nutrition space and i did share his post and i gave credit and he DM'd me and was just like a savage. Like he was just like every drop of engagement you got is due to my work. I'd appreciate it if you take it down, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's wild. Like that's wild that like yeah. firstly, this doesn't hurt him. And two, like I've given credit everywhere. I've yeah. tagged him. It has his name, like his handle on the Instagram post. I've tagged him again in the caption. I might get a couple of followers. Like my, my audience is nothing in comparison to yeah. him, but I'm like, I've actually done a nice thing for him and he's like still ripped into me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Some people always will. Yeah. Where can people find you? So obviously Instagram's easiest way. So Aiden underscore the underscore dietitian. I have a podcast called the Ideal Nutrition Podcast, and I also have a blog that's just Ideal Nutrition as well. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming on. That was very cool, very insightful, wonderful. I think our audience will will, will take a lot from it. Perfect. Thank you so much. For Cheers, me. mate. Thank cool. you. Thanks, mate.